In both the Old and New Testaments, we are told the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But what does that mean? Does it mean we need to work up warm, fuzzy feelings for God? Or does it mean something much more practical that we can actually do? Hi, I'm Yvonne Prant, and welcome to Bible 805. In our lesson today, we're going to answer that question of how to love God, where Jesus gives us specific answers and examples to follow in John 13 through 17. These chapters record the last time Jesus was with his disciples before he was crucified, and that's why I'm doing them as a special podcast series this week and next week as a special celebration just before Easter and then we'll get back to going through the Bible chronologically. So let's get started on our lesson part one of how to love Jesus. To start I'm going to actually give you the answer to what the question of the whole series is but as you'll see it takes a whole lot more explaining than just reading the verse because the answer to our challenge on how to love Jesus is very clearly spelled out where Jesus says if you love me you'll keep my commands. He says that in John 14 15. Now it sounds simple but it really isn't easy to do if we want to fulfill it well. So to truly understand it and apply it we're going to look at this entire section of John 13 through 17 where the Apostle John will give us a very detailed account of what Jesus said to his disciples just before he died. Let's look at the setting first. Imagine if you knew you were going to die in the next 24 hours. Not only that but you knew how it was going to happen and it was going to be horrible you would experience unbelievable pain and shame and it would be a horrible horrible death a death by crucifixion and adding to the pain you knew that you were going to be betrayed by a trusted friend and that your remaining friends would all run away from you now that's what it was like for Jesus when he goes to this final Passover meal with his disciples. What would you do in a situation like that? Like any teacher, I would imagine that Jesus would want to pass on his most important lessons. They were the ones who would be carrying his message to the world. They were the ones who were going to let everyone know about all of the things that he'd been doing for the last three words. So these last lessons were incredibly important, and he taught them not only by what he said but by what he did. One more bit of introduction here. Many of people's favorite passages and often quoted verses are in this entire section that I'm going to be talking about, John 13 through 17. But like so many other quote-unquote popular passages, many of these are often quoted out of context. And context is so important. The more I study the Bible, the more I teach it, the more I see how important context is. Because even if you don't just grab a passage totally out of context and completely misinterpret it, which happens with quite a few verses, you really need to see the big picture of the context, what's going on at that time in the individual story, how it fits with the whole overall story of what God's going to do for it to really make sense. And that's why in the passages that I'm going to be reading and talking about, you have to remember, this is just before Jesus died. This is when he is speaking to the people that he's going to be left behind here. You see, the big picture here is that all of human history 
was preparation for this time. This was preparation for what Jesus was going to accomplish by his death. You see, this is the time when he would finally heal the breach that had been broken between God and humanity when Adam decided to go his own way instead of obeying God. Jesus' death would be the final atonement, the covering, the payment, the satisfaction for sin that thousands of years of sacrificing innocent lambs prefigured. This was the culmination for all of the things when we go back to our chronological study of the Bible. All of these thousands of years of preparation, of calling Abraham and then calling out a people and then bringing the kingdom into place and the forerunner of Jesus, David, all of these things are literally leading up to this time. Not only that, but things are going to change radically. Up until this time, God has defined his people primarily as the Jewish people, although people outside of that race could at any time trust Jehovah God. But primarily his focus is on this one particular group. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, that's going to change to the church made up of people from every nation, every color, every everything are now part of his designated people, part of the family of God. Now Jesus knew the significance and the shortness of his time. Matthew Henry, the Bible commentator, says that Jesus was in this these passages setting his house in order as any conscientious person would before they were either passing away or getting ready to go on a long trip. Jesus knew he was leaving. He wanted to equip the people that would be carrying on his work. Now one of the things that we want to notice right away is what Jesus doesn't do because this is very important also, and that is that he doesn't focus on himself. This is a time of tremendous pressure. This is a time of, I'm sure there were many fears and all kinds of things going through the human mind of Jesus, but he doesn't talk about those. We really get to see what a person is like when they're under pressure. Some people, when they're under pressure, they lash out at others, they accuse others, or they go into this total self-pitying thing. But Jesus didn't do that. He focused on his people. And the reason that he could do that. It's very interesting. In John 13, 3, it, it, it tells us, and this is a passage that's kind of easy to skip over, but I, I want you to listen to this really carefully. Where And this is just the start of, of what we're going to be talking about. It says, it was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And now just a little parenthesis, a little explanation of the Greek word end there. That's the word teleos. And some of you that have been around my teaching, I just I just love that word. It means uh, teleos. It's, it means complete. It means perfect. When he's on the cross, when he um, is ready to breathe his last, he will say teltelestai. It is finished. Um, it's also the same word that 
gets used where in the Bible we're told to become perfect. And it doesn't mean without sin. It means complete. It means the fullness. It means being everything that we can be for, for God's sake. And here where he's talking about how he loved them to the teleos, his love was complete. It was perfect. He did everything that he could do. The passage goes on and it says, The evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so what does Jesus do with this fully in mind that God is in control? He got up to wash their feet. Now he could do this. He could do what he needed to do for the disciples' sake because he knew God was in control. He knew that his friend was going to betray him. He knew his entire earthly world would collapse. But he could do what God wanted him to and be the teacher who loved and taught until the very end. Now I want to have a little bit of application here before we get into some of the specifics. The same God who gave Jesus the strength to do and say all that he did in his last earthly hours is the same God who is in control of our lives. He has a plan for each of us. Now, we may not know the big overall plans like Jesus knew he was supposed to die on the cross. We may not know the great big things that God wants to do in our life, but we can know daily how we should live right now. We should know exactly the kind of things, how he wants us to conduct our life. Now, whether we do them or not, that might be another thing. But we need to learn to be obedient in our present situation and not to be distracted from doing what's right, no matter how difficult things are. Think about Jesus as an example here. Because one of the things that I find is the hardest thing to do in really obeying God is to think, well, I'll do that when this happens, when I get this taken care of, when I get that taken care of, when my house is clean, which, you know, when my desk is organized, when um, maybe for some people the kids are grown or when uh, the kids, when I have children or when I don't have children, when I get married or when I get divorced or when, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of whenever, whatever, then I'll obey God. What Jesus shows us is we obey him now. We do what he wants us to do now. There will always be things that will seem to be things that will be excuses of this is why I didn't obey God. But Jesus in his example right here shows us that no matter how tough life is, no matter what's going on, that we should go ahead and do what we know to do is right. Back to the story though. Now it's 12 men, Jesus' disciples, they're about ready to start a party. I have no idea that all of human history will turn on the pivot of what's going to happen in the next few days. They're about to feast. I think that's probably the main thing they were thinking about. And it's understandable. No doubt they hadn't eaten food like this in a long time. And they were ready to eat. But one very important, socially important task had not been done Nobody had washed their feet. A brief bit of cultural background might be helpful here. Remember, people wore open-toed, well, just totally open sandals. The roads were very dusty. They, most of them were not paved. People walked from place to place. So by the time they got somewhere, their feet were really dirty. It was traditional then, when you came in the door, for a servant to be there to wash your feet. Now, we know that all of the utensils were there that was needed to do this. There was a pitcher, there was a 
bowl, there were towels for drying. We know this because that's what Jesus used later. But apparently nobody did it. They were just jostling around. And we're not sure of the exact timing. But in Luke, he talks about approximately during this time. And again, we don't know exactly when in this in the supper. But it makes sense that this might have been going on, that they were arguing about who is is the greatest among them. Now, this might have been something that they might have done before they actually sat down, because where you sat, and it was actually sort of reclining at the table, that determined who was the greatest, who was the most important. It was however close you sat to the host. And so they could have been arguing about that. But it doesn't say that at that time, Jesus really says anything. It says that he got up, he takes off his outer garment, he wraps a towel around himself, and he proceeds to wash their feet. Now, this would have been a totally shocking thing to do. But apparently, except for a brief interchange with Peter, he they don't say anything. So the passage goes on in verse 12 of chapter 13. It said, When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his clothes, he sat down and spoke to them. Do you realize what I've just done to you? He said. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're quite right. I am your teacher and Lord. But if I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you must be ready to wash one another's feet. I've given you this as an example, so that you may do as I have done. Believe me, the servant is not greater than his master, and the messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. Once you realize this, you will find, once you realize these things, excuse me, you will find your happiness in doing them. That's out of the Phillips translation. Now, the thing that Jesus shows us first off here is that just because you're great doesn't mean you need to act great. Remember in Philippians also, it tells us, Philippians 2, it says, Jesus, who was very nature God, emptied himself and became a man and died on the cross. That is such an extraordinary statement. And here in this passage also, he says, look, I'm your Lord. I am your master. I am your teacher. But I'm not considering myself so important that I can't wash your feet. And the results of this, if we follow his lead, is that we'll be happy, we'll be blessed. Um, the word, and it's translated different things in different translations, but blessed uh, can also mean to speak well of something like, um, you know, be blessed, blessed be God, or something like that. But in this passage, it's the translation to be happy. Now, it oftentimes when we're about to serve someone and we're debating, oh, should I do this or shouldn't I? We don't think about it, but almost always after you do someone for someone else, you are happy. And it's kind of interesting, I was thinking about it, if you try to get your satisfaction about showing people how wonderful you are and how important you are and all of those kinds of things, it never makes you happy. Some of the most miserable people I know are people who think, well, so-and-so owes me this, and my children owe me that, and no, they don't respect me enough, or they don't love me enough, or they don't call me enough, or they, you know, whatever it is. If you're totally focused on yourself and what you want people to do for you, it will never be enough, ever. But it's amazing. If we serve people, even in little ways, it can give us and them just tremendous joy.
So the evening moves on. They've got the foot washing thing out of the way. Um, and hopefully they will remember that. Jesus says, as he sits down, he says, he tells them that someone's going to betray him. Je- Judas leaves. He does just that. The other disciples just think he's gone out to get something. But the point here, before I go on though, is that Jesus washed Judas' feet. The man who would betray him ultimately. And he also washed Peter's feet, who would deny him and run away in just a few hours. And all the others who vowed, oh, we'll die for you, we'll be with you to the end. They all ran away too. Jesus knew that was going to happen. But he washed their feet anyway. And he goes on to give them all these wonderful lessons and assurances and comfort, even though he knew what they were going to do. Here's the lesson for all of us in this. We never have an excuse not to serve. Now, we're probably not going to be faced with a situation where we might be challenged to serve someone who is going to plot our death like Judas did. We probably won't have that happen. But there are many times in life where we have an opportunity perhaps to be kind to someone or to be cruel. And in this, Jesus is our wonderful example because no matter what, He said, we are to serve. You know, the pettiness of the person is never the point. Whether they deserve it or not is never the point. The point is, how can we be more like Jesus? And the answer to that is oftentimes by serving someone we don't feel deserves it, and we may not even like it. But we do it for the sake of Jesus. Jesus goes on then in the same passage on why this is so important. He says, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as much as I love you. Your strong love for each other will prove to the world that you are my disciples. You know, you can't just preach and preach and preach and go, you know, we're Christians and, you know, you ought to do this and, you know, all kinds of just preaching without context. Now, Jesus says it's how you love each other. Unselfish acts of love say so much more than the loudest words. One of my little poems, and and I've tried to track this down, and it's attributed to all kinds of different people, and that isn't really important. But one little saying that I, I try to remember to say to myself a lot is, you're writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the things that you do and the words that you say. People read what you write, distorted or true. What is the gospel according to you? Back to the disciples. They're all confused and upset by this point. Uh, betrayal's been just talked about a couple of times. Judas, and now even Peter, who says, oh, I'll die for you. And Jesus, no, you know, <laughs> you are going to deny me in the next few hours. And so they're pretty upset. And then Jesus at this point says to them, let not your heart be troubled. You're trusting God. Trust in me. There are many homes up where my father lives, and I'm going to prepare them for your coming. When everything's ready, I'll come and get you, so that you can always be with me where I am. If this weren't so, I would tell you plainly, and you know where I'm going and how to get there. 
Now, first of all, I have to clarify something. Some of you may have grown up hearing that verse said, in my father's house are many mansions. Or you may have heard songs or whatever people saying, you know, I've got a mansion waiting for me in heaven. That's not really a correct translation of it. Uh, The word there is oikia, and it's translated either dwellings or the family that inhabits them. And then that's the first thing on the father's house. Then he says many homes. Again, it's a dwelling an act of dwelling there. There is no scriptural support for everybody having these giant mansions. Now, having said that, I do imagine that whatever Jesus is preparing for us is going to be so much better than any even earthly mansion could be. But um, just just so you know, that, that that isn't the point of it. The point of it is that Jesus is preparing a place for us. He's going to come back and take us to the home that he's prepared for us. But that brings up another problem now. And this is one of the biggest problems both it was for them and one of the biggest challenges for Christianity today because Thomas says, no, we don't know where you're going. So how do we know the way to get there? And then Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can get to the Father except by means of me. Now, remember the context, there was a tremendous amount of fear and confusion because Jesus was about to leave them. But Jesus takes it out of even that present moment and he clarifies who he is and that he is the only way to God. Now, him saying that was very offensive to the world at his time and to people today. Now, let me talk a little bit about why it was really offensive to the larger world at his time. I think every person throughout all of human history, everybody really wants to connect with God, to connect with a being greater than themselves. But the question is, how do we do that? The challenge is, at our core, most of, it want, most of us want to do it our way. Now, in the ancient world, there were a lot of options on how you could approach God. First of all, on sort of the smallest scale, there were many family gods, many tribal spirits, many sort of household spirits that you could worship. If you saw the movie The Gladiator, um, if you remember The Gladiator had these little clay statues that were of uh, family members and ancestors, and he would pray to them. And uh, that was very common where, and there still is in many cultures, today you pray to your ancestors you pray to these household gods so that was sort of the starting point then in civic religion in Egypt Pharaoh was a quote-unquote God in Rome the Emperor was a quote-unquote God so many of the rulers the leaders back in the ancient world they declared themselves to be God and if you participated in the government in uh, if you had any kind of a high-standing office you had to agree with that you had to offer incense for the sake of the emperor or the pharaoh or or whatever it was you had to to make your loyalty known and you agreed that they were a god even if you didn't really think it you you agreed that in addition every culture had what are called mystery religions and these appealed much more to the senses these were the religions where there was lots of music and ceremony and in some of them very complex rites there was feasting and sacrifice and in many of them ritual sex and this was how many people, if you could afford it, and that was an important thing, all of these mystery religions, the different um, 
festivals that they had or the what we would call services or whatever celebrations all of those cost quite a bit of money so just by the fact of that's how they operated poor people were excluded from them but if you had a lot of money you could participate in a lot of them the point is in the ancient world there were many ways to approach god or gods and none of them were exclusive in all of them you could participate in as many as you wanted it a lot of rich people you know sacrificed to all sorts of gods participated in all sorts of ceremony it's kind of a way of keeping your bases covered but at the same time all of these religions were what you decided and none of them had or very few some philosophies did but most of these religions did not have any ethical component did not have any way that particular god wanted you to act you just other than to serve that god by bringing sacrifices or offerings or participating in a ritual jesus said no to all of that he said it's me and only me Jesus made it clear that he was the only way to God. Now this should not have been surprising to them. For the last three years he'd lived with them. He showed them the miracles that fulfilled specific Old Testament prophecies. And he will soon be fulfilling the most important prophecy of all in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Just a little side note here. Sometime read through the Gospel of Matthew marking every time that it says this happen in fulfillment of or this was to fulfill this and then it quotes an Old Testament scripture I did that one time when I read through Matthew and it's just amazing that's why Matthew wrote it to show the Jews that Jesus was the fulfillment of it but it's it's a wonderful exercise in seeing exactly how he did that so he reminds them that in the last three years they've seen God at work in him when he goes on to say don't you believe that I'm in the father and the father in me the words I say to you are not just my own, but are from my Father who lives in me, and he does his work through me. Just believe it, that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe it because of the mighty miracles you have seen me do. That's from John 14, 10 and 11 in today's Living Version. And because Jesus is God's representative, his incarnation on earth, only he can be the way to God, only Jesus. Now think about it. This isn't some big um, theological thing. I want you to think about it just in purely interpersonal terms. Jesus said he's going to prepare a place for us. Now that place for us is in heaven, which is God's house. It's Jesus's house. Now if you're going to live with someone for a very long time, and eternity is about as long as it gets, you can't just barge in on them. You can't just act however you want. You just can't go up to a total stranger and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live with you. You need to know the homeowner. Again, this isn't some great theological thing. It's, it's how we're constructed. It's one of the simplest human interactions, which when we understand this, that our relationship with Jesus is a personal relationship, that that's what it always needs to be based on, then the really challenging and terrifying passages, like in Matthew 7, where at the last judgment, people are saying, oh, we cast out demons in your name and did all this great stuff and all these things. And Jesus looks at him and says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who do evil. See, it's it's not these great things that will let people go into Jesus' heaven. It's just knowing him.
So how do we get to know Jesus? How do we show Jesus that we know him and that we love him? This is not any big secret. As we started out with, Jesus just flat out tells us. He says, if you really love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's how it's translated, John 14, 15, in the Phillips, the NIV, and the KGV. And then in the New Living, it says, if you love me, obey me. The message puts it this way. If you love me, show it by doing what I've told you to do. That's how the message says it. And he repeats this idea numerous times. In John 14, 21, he says, The one who obeys me is the one who loves me. And because he loves me, my father will love him, and I too will reveal myself to him. John 14, 23, in the message says, Because a loveless world, he says, is a sightless world. If anyone loves me, he will carefully keep my word, and my Father will love him, and will move right into the neighborhood. Not loving me means not keeping my word. In challenging us to do this, Jesus is simply asking us to do what he's done, where he says in John 14:31, So that the world may know that I thoroughly love the Father, I'm carrying out my Father's instructions right to the last detail. So Jesus is saying, I'm doing what God wants me to do, and now I'm asking you to do what I tell you to do. That's how I show love to my Father. That's how you can show love to me. So how do we do this? How do we obey his teachings? Well, first of all, we've got to know what they are. That's why we must read, listen to, study, memorize, and learn his word. We must think about what's in the Bible. We must base our life on it. You see, this is so important because today our world is not Christian. You're not going to, kids today, unless they go to a wonderful Christian school, they're not going to get it in the secular school. You're certainly not going to get it from media or social media. We need God's view as expressed in his word. He doesn't leave us guessing or wondering. All of these different passages tell us what we need to know. And also, sort of a bonus thing here, um, you know, and wait, there's more. Um, I'm sorry, that was probably kind of inappropriate for this. But anyway, moving right along, um, in John 14, 26, he reminds us that we aren't alone in our struggles on this. He said, I have said all this while I'm still with you. But the one who is coming to stand by you, and in other translations it calls it the advocate or the comforter, he says specifically the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will be your teacher and will bring to your mind all that I have said to you. Now, Here's how this works out in very practical ways. When you read, you study, you listen to podcasts like this, all that content from the Bible seeps into your heart and mind. The more you learn it, the better you'll understand how God thinks and what he wants you to do. Now, where the rubber hits the road is when you are confronted with a challenging situation. You say, Lord, what should I do? You might be confused. You might not know. And then the Holy Spirit can call up a verse that you've read. Maybe you didn't even think about it in conjunction with that. But you'll think, well, you know, this is how Jesus acted in that situation. Or maybe this is what the Apostle Paul did. Or he will bring up a verse somewhere that you'll think that's how I'm supposed to act. So we grow in our relationship with Jesus. Then by knowing his word, we're confronted with different situations. We act in the way that we know he wants us to act. 
In doing that, we grow in our obedience. And Jesus said, if you're obedient, if you obey my commands, you, you're showing that you love me. So this is how we grow in our relationship to him. And then in addition to that, one more promise that he gives us in this section. If we do these things, he says, I'm leaving you with a gift peace of mind and heart and the peace I give isn't fragile like the peace the world gives so don't be troubled or afraid now he doesn't say that all challenges will be removed but he does say that we'll have peace in them let me read you one man's story this is from the St. Augustine um, website but this is about a man named Horatio G. Stafford he was a successful lawyer in Chicago he had a lovely family his wife Anna and he had five children but then in 1871 his young son died and that same year much of his business was lost in the great Chicago fire yet God in his mercy and kindness allowed the business to flourish once more then on November 21st 1873 a French ocean liner was crossing the Atlantic from the US to Europe with 313 passengers on board among the passengers were Mrs. Spafford and their four daughters. Although Mr. Spafford had planned to go with the family, he found it necessary to stay in Chicago to help solve an unexpected business problem. About four days into the crossing of the Atlantic, the French ship collided with an iron-hulled Scottish ship. Suddenly, all of those on board were in grave danger. Anna hurriedly brought her four children to the deck. She knelt there with Annie, Margaret Lee, Bessie, and Tanta, and prayed that God would spare them if that would be his will, or make them willing to endure whatever awaited them. Within twelve minutes, the ship sank, carrying with it 226 of the passengers, including the four children. A sailor, rowing a small boat over the spot where the ship went down, spotted a woman floating on a piece of the wreckage. It was Anna. She was still alive, the mother. He pulled her into the boat, and they were picked up by another large vessel, which nine days later landed them in Cardiff, Wales. From there she wired her husband a message which began, Saved alone, what shall I do? Another one of the ship's survivors, a pastor, recalled her saying at the same time, God gave me four daughters. Now they have been taken from me. Some day I will understand why. Mr. Spafford booked passage on the next available ship and left to join his wife. With the ship about four days out, the captain called Spafford to his cabin and told him they were over the place where his children went down. According to a daughter born after the tragedy, Mr. Spafford went back to his room and sat down to write the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. One of the stanzas goes like this, When peace like a river attendeth my way, When sorrows like the sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. That is the kind of peace Jesus gives us. In Philippians 4, 7, it describes it in this way. It says, And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts, your minds, through Christ Jesus. Now, it's not always easy to work on our love relationship with Jesus by taking time to learn his commands and to obey them. But if we do, the gift of his love and peace, no matter what the storms of life and the promises of being forever with him will make any efforts on our part more than worth it.
Now in the next lesson, we'll learn more about some practical ways to live, to love Jesus, so that we can always say, like it says in the words of that song, it is well with my soul. That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson. They're in downloadable PDF format and the other materials that are at www.bible805.com. And please do sign up for the newsletter. I keep promising this, but I really hope in the next while to be able to have some additional information on there, some blogs and some various other materials that I think will be helpful to you. And please do tell your friends about this podcast and encourage them to listen so that they can learn God's Word. They will be obeying Jesus' commands because if they don't know what he says, how can they obey him? How can they learn to love him? So please do encourage your friends to listen to this podcast. It's a really easy way to take the knowledge of God's word and get it into your life. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.